Hey everybody, it's Pete. Jerry Campbell is a licensed clinical social worker. He's been doing the work since 1975. In those early years, he worked in an agency supervising therapists, serving as head of therapy, a road that eventually led to private practice in 1988. Judging by his reviews online, it's no question how Jerry has developed a reputation as a therapist's therapist. He joins Dodge today to talk about his approach. As he says it, it's an integration of mind, body, and spirit modalities within a family systems framework. I like to say I work with people navigating their own hero's journey, get more of what they want, and have a transformational experience. Around these parts, anyone who trucks out Joseph Campbell is aces from the jump. They take on learning and fear this week with a provocative dance with our friend The Amygdala. Key in on the three Fs, find, focus, and follow. It might just turn out that this trio is a powerful set of F words you can really set your mind by. And now, Jerry Campbell with Dodge Ray. Welcome to the Change Paradox, Jerry Campbell. Yeah. Thanks, Dodge. So glad to have you here. Yeah, I'm interested to see where we're going to go today. Me too. It's really fun to be kind of doing this um, freewheeling a little bit without just a, you know, a, a huge outline in my mind. What I've got is, what, 15 or 20 years of, of learning from you in so many different ways that have influenced not just how I work with clients, but kind of how I move through the world. And um, I was thinking about this conversation this week and remembering that you said something to me a lot of years ago, probably 20 now. At one point, just an offhanded comment, you said, you know, if you think about it, all great truths are paradoxes. And I think that was probably the origin of this podcast like 20 years before. It's been working Ooh. on me ever since, man. Okay. Percolating. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just been sort of bubbling inside for a long time. But I found that to be true for such a long time. And I've always wanted to go back and ask you, kind of return to that moment and say, say more about that. What does that mean? All great truths are paradoxes. thought maybe we'd just start there. Well, when we identify a truth and we say this is a truth, then we've eliminated all other possibilities. We've landed on, well, this is the one and only. Mm. And what happens is truth is on a continuum. What's truth for one person may not be the truth for somebody else. And then which truth are we now talking about? Are we talking about a thought, feeling, an experience? And as soon as we land on one, we've excluded the other. And with most truths, there's the opposite side of the same coin, as well as many other possibilities. There's just not one truth. It's very similar to in couples therapy. Two people can be in a debate over which side has the truth, the yeah. best resources, the best information, as if there's a one and only truth. It's really the paradox, if well expressed, that captures that reality, that sort of double-sided coin. For example, the Bible is just full of paradoxes. Hmm. I'm not going to go down that road but for today, but it, uh, it's 
one place we get this truth and another place, oh, there's another truth that just counteracted the other truth. And that, I guess really it has been the basis of, of this investigation as a project. This, po- this podcast is really about realizing the deepest change seems to happen in that kind of way. It's a transformation that happens to us. We like to think of it as we've gone through a, a problem-solving uh, process, and that will lead to a particular truth. And at the same time, if we have a transformational experience, that may counteract what we just deduced as the truth. Isn't that interesting in itself? You also told me years ago, and clients out there of mine will smile when they hear this because just about anybody I work with sooner or later lands um, at this place in, in their work and we start to talk about it. You shared your definition of mental health and you described it back then, and I wonder if you still use the, the same words, as the tolerance and hardiness for mixed contradictory feeling. Oh, absolutely. The hardiness and tolerance for mixed contradictory thoughts and feelings. Yes. And so with that, then another frame for mental health is the ability to hold the tension between contradictory thoughts and feelings. And that tension is really our source of personal potency. And our thinker uh, just doesn't like tension. Our thinker always wants to do something to relieve the tension. Hence, oh, here's the truth that will relieve the tension. And yet, Mm. our source of potency is our ability to use and embrace the tension, not relieve it. Can you give us examples? Like, let's go down this road, because this is huge. Well, I just heard one this morning. Somebody was saying they were, excuse me, on a group call, and it went silent. Uh, No one was talking, and the tension was was building. And so this person jumped in and offered a problem that she really didn't want to talk about, but it was going to relieve the tension that was building in the room. And so everybody now focused on this person and what she presented. And then she's going, why did I do this? Well, the tension was building and she relieved the tension. Or in a similar way, just the tension in a car dealership. In the negotiation, usually who speaks first is the one who has the least tolerance for their own tension and usually gets a a lesser deal. So bring in then the part about the tolerance and hardiness for mixed contradictory thoughts and feelings. We're born with the ability to fully experience our feelings and sensations to let them amplify, magnify, intensify, and dissolve. That's our natural state. And then we get civilized into policing that, containing that, controlling, compartmentalizing those emotions, and then focus on the story or the events or what happened or let's look at the facts. And in any situation that happens... There's the story, the facts. There's also our experience, our sensations, the feelings that go with the story. And our culture minimizes the experience and focuses on the story as if the story is the road to solution. And sometimes it is. 
And yet, much of the time, there's the tension between the story, what happened, the details, the events, and our experience of that story. And if we're comfortable with our experience or our feelings, then we are going to go down that road. If any feeling, sensation that we're uncomfortable with or sounds an internal alarm, then we're going to abandon our experience and focus on the story. So, as an example, um, a feeling could be fear, terror, dread. That's an experience in our body. That's showing up in sensations in our body. If we're comfortable with that, as I said earlier, we will allow that sensation to have full expression, which means it'll get as big as it can possibly get as a sensation and dissolve. If we're not comfortable with that or that feeling sensation sounds the alarm, we'll wrap our thoughts around it to contain it. That containment will prevent it from getting bigger, which means it'll prevent it from dissolving. And now that we've wrapped our thoughts around it, we've created, instead of fear, we've created a mood. Now we have anxiety and panic. Now we're trying to solve the panic or the anxiety. And an important distinction is we can be in a mood for hours, days, weeks, a whole lifetime, and then use a whole range of healthy and unhealthy distractions to try to get out of the mood. And what's radical here, what's really transformative, if we really are comfortable and know how to embrace and lean into the feeling and sensation, it's actually impossible for a feeling to last longer than 20 minutes. But most of us didn't have that experience. I didn't have that experience growing up. I got trained to solve it, not dissolve it. Let's come back to the model of how that works in a minute. But first, can you talk a little bit about how we get trained then to solve it instead of dissolve it? Like what happens so young that before we've ever made even a choice about it, we've already headed down the road of, of narration. Well, oh, absolutely. It, we're trained in this frame to solve it uh, by our parents, and our parents were probably trained, and they were trained by their parents. So I, I'm not blaming anybody here, because this goes back a long ways. Now, having said that, let's use an example um, uh, a four-year-old comes running into the house and says, um, they've been outside playing in the sandbox, and they run into the house, and they're saying to a parent, I hate him. I'm never going to play with him again. I want him to die. Now, s- some kids will have a parent that won't even respond to that. But in this example, here, here's a parent who responds. If they're going to respond on the story... The parent says, oh, what happened? Now they're looking for who's responsible for what. Is there a guilty party? Does somebody need to be blamed? And that parent now has turned it into solving a problem. Sure. And maybe that kid is made to go to their room. Or maybe the parent is saying, okay, we're going to go outside and make that other child go home. Or maybe that parent's saying, well, you need to go out there and punch him. 
but the parents listening to the details of the story and has come up with a solution. So what that child is learning is what's important is the story. And if that child gets blamed, they certainly need to get a better story. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens with that is five minutes after the parent has solved the problem, and maybe the other child has gone home and the child's now in the house, uh, five minutes later is going, I want to be playing with my friend. And the parent reminds them why they can't play with their friend. Because somebody was guilty of something. Yeah. Now, let's frame it the other way. Uh, child comes in and says, I hate him. I'm never going to play with him again. I want him to die. Now that parent's not even focused on the story, just the experience that they hear and goes, okay, you can hate him. You don't have to play with him again. You can want him to die. As soon as that parent's validated that or been the container for that child's experience, that child amplifies it. They get louder and more intense. I mean it. I'm never going to play with them again. I want them to die right now. And here are all the reasons. Uh, And the parent's going, okay, you don't have to play with them again. Well, all of a sudden, it just begins to dissolve. And now that intensity is less, and that kid goes, I mean it. I'm not going to. And then five minutes later, that kid's back outside playing with the very kid they were not going to play with again. And then we adults can look at that and go, oh, that's the immaturity of youth. They really don't know what they feel. And another way to look at that is, oh, no, that's what happens to feelings when they dissolve. Oftentimes when feelings dissolve, there isn't a need for a solution. Sometimes there is, but oftentimes those solutions are trying to solve the feeling rather than whatever the issue is. So in this example... Uh, around that child being angry, what they've learned about anger is focus on the story and turn that into a mood of blame or guilt rather than just fully experiencing the anger. We could use the exact same example if a kid comes running in from the uh, sandbox and they're crying. And that parent says, they're going to not focus on what happened, but says, here, crawl up in my lap. And go ahead and cry. Not even asking what happened. Just go, go ahead and cry. And very quickly, those tears turn into crocodile tears. And then that child is crying even more as the parent's saying, yeah, that's it. Just let that happen. You're okay. Let it happen. And now that child is sobbing, coming from a deep place. And it's as if their world is about to end. And the transformation happens when, oh, their world didn't end. They didn't die. They went to the depth of that sadness, hurt, pain, and they didn't die. And that's when you can see a a child who's had that experience is now they're still crying, but they're also kind of smiling at the same time. And that smile is connected to recognizing they're okay. And when a child has that experience, then from that, they don't learn. They learn to be safe and okay with their sadness. 
they even learn to have a good cry. As opposed to sadness and crying is something bad. I didn't get trained in that as a kid. In my early 20s, dating a woman who told me she was going to have a good cry, I said, what on earth is that? A good cry? I thought they were all bad. Yeah. And she had her good cry, and then, oh, it was gone. Done. Yeah. So we learned from how we're responded to as a young child. What's important? The story? The experience of that story? I'm sure there are a whole lot of folks out there, even with the best of parents, who were trained like you and I were to to focus on the what happened. Let's see if we can understand the details here and, and manage anything that needs to be managed, right? Those minds are certainly asking questions like, well, wouldn't you want to know why they're having such a strong reaction as to say, I hate my friend. Like, wouldn't we want to know if maybe somebody got hurt there or there was something aggressive happening and there was a reason that child wasn't safe to play with? Would we want to ever get to the information piece? And if so, how in the world do you, how do you mix that with the dissolving wisdom that you're talking about, where you just let them have their experience for a little while and not focus on the why? Well, I'll frame it in this way. At any point in time, there's two roads to resolution. One road is kind of traditional psychotherapy, but as for a parent, that might be problem-solving. Let's look at the cognitive process, the details, what happened. That's the story. Um, And yes, that's an important piece. Oh, there's a story here. And being able to navigate stories or facts or take action, uh, that's a gift. That's a strength that we have as humans. That overshadows the other road for resolution is dissolving. And as I said earlier, oftentimes action we take or focusing on the story is really to try to resolve the feelings. And for me, it's the other way around. If we focus on the feelings first, and the feelings have dissolved, the experience has dissolved, oh, yes, then we can ask about the story. Oh, what happened? And then at that point, if there's action to be taken, the action is on what happened, not about the feeling. So it isn't to rule out that there are problems to be solved. It's to say that, I I think what I hear you saying is that a lot of times the problem solving doesn't end up working. It just kind of takes the feeling, subverts it into a narrative, and now we have to solve a narrative that may not have been the problem in the first place. It was just a lot of feelings. But if we work with the feelings first, then what information remains, if there is anything left... um, we work with in a really different way. Exactly. So whenever we focus on the story first, we're running the uh, likelihood of creating a mood. Hmm. Even if we problem-solved part of the story, we're making that kid go home and you go to your room. We solve that problem. The anger that was there or the hurt, sadness that was there that really didn't go away. It's been contained. And 
in that moment, a caring, loving parent is thinking they solved the problem. Well, they yeah. may have, have actually solved the, uh, the details, but it didn't take away the feelings. Yeah. So it's first tend to the feelings and then decide whether or not we need to tend and respond to the story. Can I tell you how over the years I've come to talk about this with, with lots of clients? I've always wanted to run this by you just to hear sort of, you know, whether this fits what you mean to convey. Okay, sure. I think about feelings as being feelings themselves, right, as being um, very much in the body, as you've just said and have taught everybody for a long time. Um, but I think of them as very fluid. And there's something about water that's wonderful, but also a little bit weird. It doesn't make any sense. It precipitates out of nowhere. It can change form from, you know, gas to liquid to solid and back. Uh, it evaporates into nowhere. You can't hold it in your hand very well. It's really tough to, to work with water, and it can be really overwhelming in large volume, right? Mm -hmm. Thoughts, on the other hand, are more like dirt. Like, with dirt, you pretty much make a pile of dirt, and it's going to stay there unless you add water to it or you blow it away with wind. It, it pretty much stays where you leave it. It doesn't do any weird things like soak into the ground beneath it or evaporate. It just stays there. That's kind of nice. So we have this way of, like, adding a lot of thoughts to our feelings, uh, and we make mud. And mud is kind of a mess, like a mood can be, but it also, in a, in a weird way, is both useful in a good way and in a bad way, because once you get mud, you can bake it into bricks. <laughs> so you can turn your, you know, let's say it would have been a passing anger into a kind of bitter resentment, and now you can build a whole story around your bitter resentment. Absolutely. And you've got bricks, and you can make a whole wall about, you know, something that was, that might have been nothing. And then, of course, you start to hate the wall you've built around you or between you and something else or someone else. And so you have to go get yourself distracted from that. And it's a lot harder to break down walls than it is to let water evaporate, which, as you say, tends to last only about 20 minutes. And what I, you're absolutely on target with that. And what I would add to that is the notion you've highlighted is we have the felt sense and actually sometimes can do it where we can control dirt and turn yeah. it into mud. We, we have a sense that we're in control. With water, we have to acknowledge, oh, we're really not in control. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen with that. We can have some predictability with that. But I, I, I like to frame it in terms of, then apply this to your analogy. So focusing on the dirt would be choosing to focus on um, the known miserableness. And focusing on the water would be focusing on the miserable unknownness. Hmm. Well, why would we want to focus on the known miserableness? Because it's known. We know what to do. And maybe we've even been there a hundred times. As you said, we know that resentment. We're just adding bricks to that resentment. And we're really not wanting to choose miserableness. We're just choosing that it's known. And since it's known and we've been there before, it seems safer than choosing the miserable unknownness. Because at first with the miserable unknownness, we 
really don't know what's going to happen. We're having to let go of control, which is actually something that we experience in our body. Our thinker doesn't like to let go of control. It always wants to be in control. So then another way to add uh, water, I like your uh, image there, is I, I refer to it as emotion is really energy in motion. And our feelings start out as sensations in our stomach. And those sensations take all kinds of shapes and forms. And any sensation that the amygdala part of the brain is safe with will allow that sensation to come all the way up to the um, frontal cortex to identify, oh, this is about this feeling or this situation. But any sensation or energy in motion that we're not comfortable with or don't feel safe, then the thinker begins to disconnect from that. Now we're in our head going, I got a problem to solve. And what we also have that energy in motion or emotion now buried somewhere in our body. And our, our body keeps the emotional score and But we've now disconnected from our experience, and now we're back into our head focusing on the story and wanting to solve the story. And sometimes, uh, that's enough. We've solved the story. Okay, great. So I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying uh, in these two roads to resolution, one is better than the other. Uh, they both are very useful. And whenever one is not working... Rather than looking for a new and improved way with problem solving, another option is to flip back to, oh, maybe I just need to have my experience. Yeah. And then the challenge and opportunity becomes, how do we really do that? When we were trained at a young age to um, leave that process and get focused on the story. And the challenge and opportunity becomes, oh, okay, how do we go back and relearn uh, what was a natural state that we were born with? Can I tie a bunch of this together in an example that might help this make some sense for folks out there? I'm thinking about sure. a colleague um, who asked to just consult about a client she was working with yesterday. And uh, this was somebody... Um, the, the client is from a medically oriented family and is in the medical field herself. And they had a conversation about whether they should get together in person soon. And my colleague shared that, you know, she wasn't vaccinated yet, but she was thinking about it and working that direction. And her client became uh, really upset. Um, and then began to get really dissociative. She really shut down in the conversation. She couldn't make eye contact um, over Zoom. She couldn't, uh, she couldn't quite describe what was happening for her, but was definitely wanting out of the conversation as soon as possible. And it took a long time to sort out that part of what was going on was that she felt angry towards somebody who had been probably the safest person in her whole life. And yet she couldn't feel angry towards somebody who was meant to be safe for her because in her family, anger was always punished. Mm 
and you were sent to your room. She was exiled for feeling angry. So there was no why that was good enough, and there was certainly no exploration of just, okay, you're angry, let's be angry. Um, She was taught angry is unsafe, and she grew up in a pretty abusive environment, from what I understand. And so here she is, having a conversation with a therapist that she's worked with for years, safely and very productively, and she doesn't know what to do. Because her body isn't allowed to feel angry, she's been trained not to, and she certainly can't have two feelings at once. This tolerance and hardiness is really low for her to feel both angry and feel safe, or to feel a real doubt about someone's judgment, but also a trust in them. She couldn't hold that tension, and all she could do was to want to get off the call as soon as possible and disappear from the relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for somebody out there, what they might start to understand is, so that's where it is right there. For her, it happens to be anger. For some people, especially men, it's fear or sadness. For all of us, we've got some feelings that are really scary to fully access, like to let all the way into our experience. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then we start taking actions like, you know, distancing ourselves from somebody who might make us feel that way or distracting ourselves like crazy or dissociating altogether. We find lots of ways around it. Is this helpful to mean as an example? Oh, absolutely. It's right on target. Yeah. When you talk about this model, one of the things I've always been really intrigued with is is this idea that if we then allow ourselves to have just the, the pure sensations of, of an emotion... Often we find that that first emotion isn't actually the final one. It's sometimes, in fact, it's a very loud trumpet section for a royal feeling to follow. So it might be anger is really strong up front, but if we are willing to just sit in the sensation of angry and not believe every freaking thought we have about it, it may turn into what? Follow from there. Uh, Well, I'll back up and say in, in your example, so if... Anger is kind of the doorway emotion, the doorway emotion to our darker emotional house. And if we're not safe with that anger, we will stop at the doorway or maybe even run away from the door in the house. If we're safe with that emotion or we're fully experiencing that emotion and it dissolves, then it'll open the door to what's under, what's the next room which is usually either going to be sadness and hurt and disappointed or fear, terror, dread, or hopelessness and powerlessness. Certainly not feelings we go to bed at night hoping to wake up with, and yet all normal, healthy feelings. So in allowing one feeling, we may start to drop into another. Uh, Actually, that's usually what will happen. If we allow one feeling then we're uh, beginning the descent. And that descent is what we do with the feeling. Now, our training around the story is uh, don't do the descent because you'll fall into a black hole and never come back. There's no bottom to that black hole, Uh, which is untrue. There is a bottom to the black hole. And the only way to get there is through the descent and as we descend through these feelings that I just mentioned, uh, then we are going to get to the bottom. In, in terms of dissolving, that's the goal. 
descending through these different sensations slash feelings, hit the bottom, and then what happens to us is the transformation in which we begin to start ascending the other way. Talk about that transformation, and, and what's at the bottom? As we're doing the descent, the challenge and opportunity is we have to get our thinker out of the way, which means get our thinker to stop being in control. Because as soon as the thinker wants to be in control, it's going to try to climb out of the descent, focus on the story, try to do something. But if, we're, if we've given the thinker a job, which is first order of business with that is to find this sensation in our body. We're not even focusing on the feeling now. We're just focusing on the sensation, whatever it is. Maybe it's even a twitch in the eye or a, a pain in the knee. So if we find that strongest sensation and then we focus on it, now that we've focused on it, then it will amplify, magnify, intensify, get as big as it can get. And if our amygdala allows it to happen, meaning we're safe with it, it will dissolve. And either we've just transcended everything, I'll come back to that, or more than likely, it will now that sensation will move somewhere else and we have a different experience. And that means, oh, now focus on that sensation and let it amplify, magnify, intensify. So to give the thinker a job, it's find it, focus, and follow, which is uh, in a way similar to uh, transcendental meditation. Give the thinker a job, give it a mantra. Mm -hmm. Well, the meditation, as you know, isn't the mantra isn't focusing on the mantra is not the objective. The mantra is just giving the thinker a job. And as we go back and forth, we fall into a uh, transcendental state. Well, with these feelings, if we're finding and focusing and following and we get to the very bottom and our thinker is no longer in control, well, now that means we're showing up fully surrendering control of the outcome and then here's the part of the bottom the bottom is the, that black hole is nothingness aloneness nowhereness well at the thinking level that doesn't sound very appealing <laughs> who wants that but now that we're no longer in control and we're just descending and we hit the bottom then when I said transformation is what happens to us, then we're no longer in control at that nothingness, aloneness, and nowhereness. We're also now being joined by whether it's uh, God, source, spirit, the other, the universe, whatever one wants to refer to it. Something happens to us that's transformative that the nothingness becomes no thing. The aloneness becomes all one. The nowhereness becomes now here. That's that child who was crying from the sandbox and hit the bottom and the end of the world, and, oh, they didn't die. They just felt they were going to die. 
And so when we hit that bottom of that black hole, that transformation is, again, we're not in charge. As soon as we're in charge, then we're back up the other side of where we were descending, trying to get in control. But if we're still just following, then we have an experience of, of witnessing. And we're witnessing what's going on with us. And then this witnessing is um, where I lose a lot of people because we're not alone when we're witnessing. We can have all kinds of unusual experiences when we're witnessing. Um, when this has happened for me, when I'm witnessing, things turn into slow motion. Mm-hmm. And for other people around them, they may be going at the same speed, but for me, it's it just unfolded in slow motion. Yeah. Other people report, oh, feeling hot, cold, uh, uh, their heart's on fire, uh, they have a belly laugh that they can't stop laughing, they're as big as the room, or the room is breathing, um, any number of uh, unusual experiences that are what happened to us when we really surrender. And then as we're ascending out of that witnessing, we now very quickly experience the beautiful sadness. Back to that child's going, they're still crying, and they're kind of smiling. And the beautiful sadness, we have the felt sense, uh, we're okay. Uh, The worst just happened. And yet, we're okay. Mm. And out of the beautiful sadness then emerges um, calm, peace, joy, serenity. But we didn't make that happen. We kind of got out of the way and let that happen. And the challenge here and the opportunity is Until we've had that experience where we've hit the bottom and begun to ascent, uh, there's not much way we can believe or trust it. Yeah. As we go, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's something that happens to us. Well, that's why I use the example of uh, TM. So, that meditative state is what happens to us. Or when we get hit with a, uh, a dose of intuition that hits us right in the chest. Oh, that's what happened to us. Yeah, this is making a lot of sense to me, Jerry. Um, a couple of episodes ago, maybe three, we heard from Victoria Castle, who was talking about this interesting idea that, that relief is not halfway back to happy. <laughs> when we're seeking relief, we usually are heading the other way. It's like we needed to cross a river of sensation mm-hmm. or of emotion or feeling or experience. And relief is turning back for the, you know, the near bank and not getting through it. And I hear you naming that same thing in the distractions. So we, f- we find some relief adding dirt to our water, adding thoughts to our feelings, because it gives us some sense of we know what's happening we get out our label maker and, you know, we <laughs> put lots of labels on things. And then we create a whole narrative, usually inventing a bunch of facts that we don't fully have yet. 
and then we want to attack the narrative to make the feeling stop. And then that doesn't work very well, so we end up over there in distraction again, whether healthy or unhealthy. But it's relief, Mm -hmm. not really moving all the way through the dissolving of the experience in the first place. And as you say, if it's a solvable problem, that that can be fine. Like sometimes there was just like, you needed to walk back out there with a little kid and help arbitrate who's going to get to play with the dump truck in the sandbox first. Fine. But some of the time it's more than that. Someone just got disappointed and they don't know what to do with all that feeling. So for just a minute, they hate their playmate. And if we can't let them have that feeling, it never passes through and they get really married to the story. Exactly. Yes. And in those stories, this will, I'll tie this back to where you started with uh, paradox. If we're looking at doing a descent and hitting a bottom and an ascent, then I'm saying that's part of the human condition. And what's included in that? Anything that happens in our life, when we combine the story and the experience, and we start going, what's under that? What's under that? And we keep drilling down. We can drill down to the very bottom. It's either in everything that we experience is either in the camp of love or it's in the camp of fear. If it's in the camp of love, we're going, oh, there's nothing I need to do about that. If it's in the camp of fear, then I've just described this descent, bottom ascent process. But essentially, it's either in the camp of love or the camp of fear, one or the other. And through the millennium of people kind, love's not been able to cancel out fear. Fear hasn't been able to eliminate love. So the human condition means we live in a dynamic tension between love and fear. It may be one's a little bit ahead of the other one, but oh, love and fear is always there. As a white American male, uh, my training was, oh, it's not manly to have fear. And if there's fear, get rid of it, or fear, solve it. And what I'm trying to highlight is, no, we don't get rid of fear. It's always there. So then it becomes, uh, what's our relationship like with fear? And then that's where we can increase our hardiness and tolerance to lean into the fear, use the fear, With that notion, then oftentimes, I'm sure you see this in your practice, I see it a lot. Underneath whatever are the presenting issues is also the fear of one's experience around those issues. And when I say to people, uh, I want to help you be afraid, initially people look at me like I'm crazy. Right. And then it becomes, oh, no, let's look at what that really means to be afraid. What does it really mean? On the surface, oh, that we're just normal. We're afraid. So we're having an experience that scares us. And our thinker frequently goes, oh, that which scares us is going to hurt us. But most of the time, fear is not going to hurt us. It's just going to scare us. And then it becomes, what does that mean? Oh, do we think about it in our head or do we focus on it? in our body how do we experience that feeling for many of us it's uh, a racing heart a pounding heart we get sweaty or clammy in our hands or our knees get jelly or our stomach is churning and we're going oh that's fear oh let me see if i can be with those sensations and let them happen 
surrender to those sensations, show up fully to those sensations, and they'll dissolve. I used to have a fear of heights and going, well, this is crazy. I ought to be able to solve that. I ought to be able to figure that out. Uh, and then I went, oh, that's the story I'm going to have. I, I need to experience this. There was a time I was at the beach and saw some people parasailing and went, that would be a great way to experience my fear. Notice I didn't say get rid of it, but yes. experience it, which meant uh, noticing all the sensations that were and thoughts that were happening for me even the night before. Uh, oh, I think I'm getting sick. I probably am not going to be able to go. And then next day, oh, I need to drive. Because if I drive, maybe I'll get pulled over by uh, a policeman and that'll be delayed and won't be able to get on the boat. And going, look at all the ways I'm distracting myself from my fear. There were many more. And then I'm on the boat. And what I'm noticing as I'm getting ready to get to the back of the boat and it's my turn, I'm not even connected to my body. And then I'm now in the air. And while I'm in the air, I'm not even connected to what's going on. I'm focusing on the horizon where the sky and the ocean meet. And I get, eventually get back in the boat and my friends say, wasn't that great? And I go, I don't know. I missed the whole thing. <laughs> yep. I was in a dissociative state. That was the terror. I was paralyzed, which then meant, oh, do it again and again. Oh, that's the repetition and the persistence is what increases our hardiness and tolerance for the amygdala to learn. The amygdala doesn't learn through insight or awareness. The amygdala learns through new sensations. So eventually I was in the air going, I think I got this licked. I'm no longer afraid of heights. Let me check that out. So I could look down and see my feet dangling in the air and going, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, I got this. Yeah, I'm breathing all right. Okay, I got this. And then the next thing I noticed as I did a body scan was that my hands were gripping the rope so tightly I was white-knuckling it, and I went, oh, all my terror went right into my hands, and I didn't even know that. Oh, I don't have the hardiness and tolerance that I thought I did. Oh, do it again. The repetition of that isn't was was not a mental process it was going find focus and follow just keep finding my fear the sensations in my body focus on that as much as i could as i said earlier initially when i was totally hijacked i couldn't even find my body and now going forward so whenever i'm uh, out in the woods hiking and there's a cliff and I'm going to, I want to walk to the edge of that cliff, and to be able to do that, I'm focusing on my body. What are the sensations? And have an increase the hardiness and tolerance of, to feel those sensations, then I get to get to the edge of the cliff. Now, there are probably other ways that somebody could have done a process and said, oh, yeah, we can do all kinds of uh, solving ways, and that'd be okay. The path I chose was to try to dissolve the fear. Most of the good-seeming solution paths end up being just an organized way to dissolve the fear anyway. You know, um, it's, you know, how do you, how do you come back into your full experience and then pair that with, with something else? Mm -hmm. 
You know, one thing that's really interesting about this model is once in a while I'll work with somebody and I'll find, for example, a, a gentleman came to me recently and is uh, has got a particular phobia that's just come up since last fall. And every time he's in that activity, he finds, which is just a day-to-day normal activity, he finds himself very afraid. And so we spent a bunch of time working with, can we just sort of be in the sensation of the fear? Keep your breath moving a little bit, which, by the way, for everyone out there, will help you stay in your sensation. Um, But just staying there with it, noticing your breath at least, he wasn't finding it was moving. It was pretty stuck. And he needed some help getting from those sensations into one that he kept missing, which I think in his world was one of the forbidden feelings. And beneath it for him was grief. He had he had very nearly experienced a huge loss, and that's what started this phobia. Even though it was had nothing to do with the particular thing he was afraid of, it just would happen at the same time. When we started talking about his grief, and I helped him just stay in the sensation of that, Lots of tears came, much to his surprise. He kept saying, I don't know why this is going on. I'm so sorry. And I would just guide him right back into it. But Mm -hmm. he felt it all the way through to the bottom in this way where you could really see him come out the other side in the beautiful sadness. I just kind of helped him surrender repeatedly until he got started the ascent. And from then on, Mm -hmm. he could work with his anxiety entirely differently. And I mean, it's been literally, you know, a handful of days that all of a sudden the phobia is very much accessible and, and is moving on. But it's an interesting point, I guess, just to say, um, looking for that feeling that's beneath the one that's so insistent, sometimes we need a little bit of the thinker involved or some help from somebody to help us find what else is here. Oh, 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 yeah, absolutely. What I would also add is what you were providing for that gentleman was uh, a safe container. Yeah. And out of that safe container, uh, if we're feeling safe, we don't have to shift to, I got to make it safe. It's easier to go with our experience when we're safe. And on our own, we're only going to be able to go as far as our reptilian or amygdala part of the brain will allow us. So, oftentimes, many people might say, well, okay, I'll do this. I got it. Find it, focus, follow. Okay, that's simple enough. And then they'll come back and go, well, that didn't work. I tried it. Well, part of what we're doing is the repetition is teaching the amygdala it doesn't need to sound the alarm where we get into either fight or freeze or flee mode, but instead allow that sensation to get into the frontal cortex and and we can identify the feeling. And we can then take our attention and focus on the sensations of that and let that happen. Or we can go the other way and go, I'm going to turn this into a problem-solving route. And we can solve it in yeah. some way. But each time, we'll only, we can only go as far as our biology uh, will allow us. And in your example, obviously, that, that went... Uh, quicker for that gentleman, and I would suspect that was because you were the safe container, and he was allowing you to be the guide. It's part of the beauty of psychotherapy is somebody else can kind of hold space while we have our full experience, especially if they 
don't join us in all of the the thinking and labeling and understanding, but just join us in the experience of it. I once mapped this out to a, a fellow who said that he thought that what I was saying was the biggest bunch of crap he'd ever heard. <laughs> and that uh, he wanted to say, let's, I'll, he was going to prove me wrong. So he said, let's do it. You, you walk me through this. Let's do it. And I said, okay. So I, I asked him to just notice anything going on in his body, anything at all. And he said, oh, nothing. And I said, well, just let nothing be there and we'll see if anything emerges. And in a few minutes of nothing, then he got a twitch in his eye. And I said, so just focus on the twitch in your eye. And he did, and he said, it's twitching more. And I'm going, so see if you can let it just twitch more. And then he went, well, now it's burning. Okay, see if you can let it burn. And he said, now it feels like there's somebody's piercing it with a rod right through my eye. And he was kind of wincing. And I said, just let that happen. And then he said, well, this is really weird. I don't like this because now there's like a rod going from temple to temple. And I'll fast forward this. And then it went down his backside. And then it moved to his stomach. And then he said, "It's oh, it's like all these shards of glass just ripping my stomach apart. And then it moved to his chest. And he said, oh, it's a ton of bricks on my chest. Uh, I can barely breathe. And I was going, well, yeah, you don't have to breathe. Just, just let those bricks crush you. Mm-hmm. And then it was in his throat and he couldn't swallow. Okay, you don't have to swallow. Just let, let yourself be with that. And then he said, oh, I know what this is about. And he proceeded to tell me a story of what it was about. And when he was done telling the story about what it, what it was connected to, uh, I asked him what would have happened if he hadn't told me the story. And he said, well, he had to tell me the story because he knew if he didn't tell me the story and stop what was going on, he was going to be a puddle on the floor in tears and I wouldn't have been able to put him back together and we would have had to take him to the hospital and I said so you would have been crying and he said oh no I would have been sobbing and I said okay and and when was the last time you cried about that and this was something that in the story it had happened almost 50 years earlier And he said, uh, oh, I've never cried about that. Never, never. That wouldn't have been allowed. And I went, oh, you never cried. Oh, that, oh, okay. We go, that's why you stopped the tears. Wasn't okay. And then I, I said, so isn't it interesting where this started was in one of your eyes. Just a twitch in the eye. And where it would have ended up would have been tears flowing from the eyes. And so I use that as an example of what can happen as we follow and have a transformation, as well as, uh, I want to be clear, for that guy and what I just described, that wasn't a failure. He went as far as he was comfortable going. 
and it stopped, he stopped it in his throat. And then it became, okay, well, let's see where we can go next time. Beautiful. So having the hardiness and tolerance is not something we can think our way there. It's through the repetition. Uh, just like I'd like to have abs and buns of steel just by watching the DVD. <laughs> Only, oh no, that takes a lot of repetition and persistence. And initially, uh, with that exercising, it's like, I don't think anything's happening. So we can give up or we can be persistent and eventually see some changes in our body. Well, it's the same way. With that person you described earlier that you were consulting on who completely dissociated, well, that would be a slower process of lots of repetition. And again, the repetition is just trying to increase enough safety to go a little bit further next time. Yeah, it's sort of a slow and sacred process. And sometimes beautifully unwinds very quickly. I mean, it sometimes people really do drop to the bottom, as you say, quite rapidly. And the ascent, you know, comes almost as quickly after that. Um, but most of the time, it's, a, it's a, just a slow process. Sometimes I find as, you know, following the ascent, as someone's coming back up, we even have to be careful not to add narrative at that point. Sometimes the narrative's fine, but often what I'll find is that people will then want to go back to a whole story that they've got a lot of practice around, you know, especially if it's something that's been stuck for a long time, they'll, you know, they're like, whew, don't know where those tears came from. Well, anyway, as I was saying, you know, my husband sucks. Um, <laughs> and so they yeah, want to go yeah. back to it. But if we can just slow down and say, wait a minute, that's been the story. I'm wondering, does that actually feel true in your body right now? And mostly they'll pause and then look completely confused and say, actually, weirdly, it doesn't. It's a very mysterious and beautiful process, though, joining our experience. You're raising a very important, very important point. We can have a transformational experience. And then after that, we may have to change the narrative. Or we go right back to um, the narrative, and it's as if we've negated the experience. It's as if it never happened. And then there's those times where the narrative stays the same, but it's completely transformed anyway. Like, somebody will still hold an awareness that, let's say, a parent was really not a very loving parent. But the beautiful sadness is really different from the sadness on the front end. It can feel like there's something like compassion enters or a kind of understanding or a sort of safety that's, that allows what happened in the past to finally recede into the past. Through that sort of transformative process, it doesn't seem to grip us the same way afterward, even if we're aware, yep, my dad was still pretty abusive or my mom was, you know, pretty neglectful. There's something about the feeling in the, of the story changes radically. A absolutely. I, I like to frame that as we own our experience or we're owned by our experience. Yeah. We can own our feelings or we're being owned by our feelings. And if we're being owned by our feelings, that means any particular feeling that owns us, we have a charge around it. We have, we're afraid of it. We don't want to go there. 
we're going to do all the ways not to experience that feeling. Yep. And if we own it, then it's as if that feeling or that event, that situation that occurred, it doesn't change the situation. If somebody was raped, they were still raped, yet it doesn't have the same charge. And so with anything that has strong emotion attached to it, that emotion is always wanting to get finished. And we can only finish it if we allow it to happen, follow it to happen, feel safe enough for it to happen, and then it dissolves. Yeah. Kind of like Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water. I think the healing of it ends up, interestingly, coming back to that definition of mental health, because the pain may still be there in some way, or at least the facts of the history are still there, certainly. And yet, it's it's as though there's finally room for other feelings to join that. Like, yes, I'm sad my mom was a terrible mom, um, and I've made a beautiful life since then, and I'm okay. Those are mixed contradictory feelings, and it takes a lot to... Um, to hold both of those. One woman I work with experiences panic, and what she's been practicing is, can I have my fear and be aware that I might also be having some other feelings too? And that's been a breakthrough for her to be able to notice, interesting, I can actually feel panic and something else, and it really changes the panic, or begins to. Absolutely, and that's a very nice evolution, because... Our thinker, uh, we don't have the hardiness and tolerance for mixed contradictory feelings. Our thinker always defaults back to, well, which is the dominant one? There's only one. Right. Uh, I can't be calm and agitated at the same time. Right. Well, actually, we can go, yeah, a part of me is calm, a part of me is agitated, a part of me is excited, a part of me is scared. Another part of me is angry. Another part of me is pleased. Oh, how much time you got? I got more parts. Right. If we're comfortable with that range, then of course that's where we go. But for most of us, it becomes, well, now which is it? Right. Which is the correct, which is the correct feeling or the dominant feeling or the strongest feeling as opposed to oh, all of them? We tend to choose the one that fits the story. And we tend to choose a story that fits our history. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if we've got a whole mixed bunch of feelings about what's happening right now, let's say in this new romantic relationship, and one of them is scared because, you know, relationships are scary. But if there's a whole lot of history, we're going to go with, uh, see, I knew it. Men or women are always like this. Scary. And then we tend to just stay with that or sad or infuriating or something else. Yeah. One really neat thing to play with I've found, and I bet you have too, is that if if folks can notice that different parts of their body will hold those different mixed contradictory feelings, they can stay with that that mixed contradictory paradox a little better or longer. Like they might notice, I'm really scared. Where do you notice that? I'm really scared in my chest. And a little later, what might emerge is, tell me about the part of your body that also feels safe. Oh, that would be more in my legs. Can you hold those at the same time? 
it's really interesting to watch what happens. Mm-hmm. That sometimes can help it dissolve. And I don't mean that just in the technique sense. It sounds like, you know, because it I said it in a in abbreviated way, but but there there can be a lot of beauty to noticing the body will hold both. And that helps my thinker stay out of my story and just stay with I'm feeling really scared and safe or really angry but grateful or any number of opposing, seemingly opposing feelings. Yeah, you're inviting that person to lean into the tension between different parts. And as you're inviting them to do that, you're giving the thinker a job. Yeah. And without a job, the thinker wants to take over. And how it takes over is to be in control and eliminate the tension between different feelings, different sensations in the body. Different truths, even. So our thinker is a real, yeah, different truths. Our thinker is obviously a, a real gift, yet at the same time, like a tennis player who has a horrible backhand, they might overdevelop their front, uh, their uh, forehand, and rely on that all the time. And we miss out on a big part of our life. It's really hard to get to peaceful if it feels like it on, the only path there is through control, because sooner or later we've run into all the situations that we can't control. And yes, and the great American story is, oh, we can be in control. Yes. When it rea- No, it's not true. That's just a myth. Which is then our training and our parents' training and so forth has been... Focus on the story, get it under control, get your emotions under control, which means get them contained and figure out what to do and then do something. And sometimes that's really useful. And sometimes that's a total detour of what needs to happen. Boy, you're right about that, Jerry Campbell. I've enjoyed the opportunity to go down this road with you. It's been just fantastic. I really appreciate this conversation. Okay. Thanks for having me. It's Pete again. The amygdala does not learn through insight. It learns through experience. It's hard for me to hear that and not think that my amygdala is trying to punk me. That fear of heights story, I got that and more. I'm looking at you, needles. Next week on the Afterthoughts podcast, Dodge and I take all this in. There will be wordplay, for sure but also a review of the story of the lonely amygdala and its journey to find purpose through extreme sports. If you're interested in that conversation, we invite you to check it out by becoming a supporter of The Change Paradox yourself. This whole endeavor comes thanks to listeners just like you, listeners who have already visited truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox and signed up to be supporters of this show. These contributions go straight to the costs associated with production and hosting and delivery of the show to you and gives us the freedom to make more choices around how we spend our time doing it. You get more great guests, longer seasons, and bringing on new members of our team here to help the change paradox thrive. The Afterthoughts podcast is one of our member benefits. After each show, Dodge and I process with a few laughs along the way. Plus, you'll get every episode a week before public release in your very own 
member podcast feed. To those who have joined already, our deepest thanks. To those still thinking it through, we hope to see you soon. And now, Jerry Campbell offers a meditation designed to help you find a new connection to your body. So anyone that would venture, like to venture down this road, I would just invite you to sit comfortably. Don't have to sit any particular way, just comfortable. And breathe. And breathe however you feel like breathing. Keep your eyes open, your eyes closed. And I would invite you to just draw your attention to any particular sensation in your body, wherever it is whatever it is, and just focus your attention on that sensation. Don't have to make anything happen. Just draw your attention to that sensation. And notice it. No need to go why or what or connected to anything. Just notice whatever shape and form it's taking. Let it take that shape and form. Know that you're safe. You're in your body. Your body knows what it wants to do and needs to do. And as you focus on that sensation, see if you can let that sensation do whatever it wants to do. And if it wants to sit there, let it sit there. Just be with it. And then I would invite you to describe to yourself the sensations. And as you do that, stay focused on those sensations. And if it's, you're right on target with that sensation, it will amplify, magnify, intensify. That's what it wants to do to dissolve. And let that happen. And if it dissolves and moves to another part of your body, then follow it there. Find where it's landed. Focus on that sensation. And go through the same process again of just letting that happen. And you might find that sensations just move throughout your body all the way up to your face. 
Or you might find you just got distracted and you're having a thought. Well, then stop right there. That just means the amygdala said, no longer safe to go any further down that road. So then stop. That's okay too. It went as far as the amygdala would allow us to go. Ultimately, we can only go as far as our biology will let us. So I'm pausing for a few seconds just to let you see where you are in your body or that you've stopped. And I'll wrap up with this notion. So what I just described, on the one hand, seems too simple. It cannot be this simple. And yet it is, in that this is the natural state that we were born with until we got taught not to go down that road. So on the one hand, it is this simple. On the other hand, it's very complicated when it's tied to any kind of trauma or drama or unfinished business or wounds or hurts or fears or challenges. Which then means, oh, this is a tool that we can use to um, uh, not only heal ourselves, but actually transform our experience. <laughs> 